Hello. <laughs> that was bad. Let's do a different one. What? No. No. First take, best take. I'm the one who edits it. I can I don't take care. back whatever I want. Editing is censorship. Whatever. You don't even listen to this podcast. We need to get our ideas out. To, I don't need to listen to it. I make it. <laughs> I'll listen to it up here, and then it comes out of here. Yeah. I can read. You can read. We can read. We're reading together. I married you. You married me. We got married. Yeah, we married each other. Now we're reading books, talking in mics, discussing stuff with one another. We're a a couple's book club. Cool. Good. It's a good start. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Couples Book Club. Woot, woot. I'm Lauren. That's Isaac. We read the same book, and we are also married to each other. I still want to try to read, like, different books, but they have to be, like, related enough. Like, different ones from, like, like if we read different Harry Potter books and we're trying to have a conversation about it, thinking it was the same book. Why would we do that? Well, because you just say we read the same book, and I want us to not do that sometime, just to see what would happen. It's not the premise of the podcast. It's the premise Maybe, of my class to, sometimes, apparently. If we make apparently. it to 100 episodes, we can read different books. <laughs> this is like episode like 16 th- or something? 17? We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, guys, this time we read the book Dead Mountain, the untold true story of the Dyatlov Pass incident by Donnie Eichar. It's about... Soviet hikers getting eaten by alien yetis. Alien Maybe. yetis? What? Just the capitalist yetis. Capitalist yetis. Yep. I think they're aliens, but they might also be capitalists on their planet. In the uh, in the film version, it was going to be a uh, young uh, Ronald Reagan has a capitalist yeti. <laughs> Just like a regular yeti, but he mm-hmm. wears like an Uncle Sam hat and jacket. Mm. I don't know. So he's throwing, throwing greenbacks around. I don't think he would have been in a Soviet movie because he's a fucking communist narc. Well, no, he's doing. He's doing. It's the American version because it's a capitalist mm. triumph. Oh, okay. Wiped out a field full of commies. Oh, I see. Okay, I apologize. As I thought he was playing the Yeti. villain. Uh, because uh, weirdly, I'm not a huge Reagan fan. I don't know what it is. Drinking that haterade over there. I know. Wait. What is that? A boot. I'm sorry, did someone let a Canadian in? Maybe. Oh, hey, pal. (laughs) Oh, oh, sorry for interrupting your podcast. Oh, sorry. Sorry about interrupting your podcast. I just, uh, uh, I was just down at the Tim's and, uh, Jeff said that, uh, you guys were thinking about, uh, learning to curl. Yeah, we could, we could read that, uh, that, uh, introduction to curling strategy next. That's, no. It is a page turner. It's an instructional instructional manual. It's also it instructional. Also instructional. <laughs> Drinking our respected beverages. Yeah. Uh, Isaac's pounding a Red Bull. I've got a cocktail called the White Lady. It's the most communist of energy drinks. It's an Austrian company. The bowl is red. You think that's a coincidence? It's taken from like a um, like a Thai energy drink, I think. No, that. Bowl has read all of the marks. Well, it might have read marks. I'm just saying that's where it came from, as I recall from 
being an energy drink scholar. I care about your facts. In a, in a previous life. This is a fact-free environment. <laughs> Isaac's just nodding. Cool, cool, He's cool. Just nodding. Well, I had a mouthful of bowl, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh my god. That's a rap lyric for you. Yep. Something about a mouthful of bowl. <clears throat> Sun's out, guns out, because you're so into the tank tops these days. I'm, think- I'm thinking of doing a uh, my <laughs> own. Uh, uh, remember the name remix. I'm just going to mm. dr- drop a verse in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The stupidest verse, if I may. <laughs> 10% luck, 20% skill, 15% concentrated power of will. New national anthem? Uh, yes. And yes. The song by a um, really underrated group, possibly, I don't know. Fort Minor, bro. Fort Minor. Oh. There are a lot of resoundingly positive uh, YouTube comments about that video. Well... About that group, you know, <laughs> YouTube commentary at it's who I turn to for most many uh, of my information. Many people talking about it being their uh, workout jam, getting pumped up. I well, I heard that song probably several years after it came out, uh, being played um, during a fashion show on a Korean drama I was watching, and I was like, "What is this? I it's amazing!" It's like, I want to say like oh four oh. Oh six, like it's pretty. It's a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Because it and was this when Lincoln like, Park was still like a, an ongoing concern. I watched a show in like 2012 or something, and it was a new show then. But um, in Korea, they don't know how old it is. They use different numbers. Shit's timeless, son. That's a fact. They're gonna like someday. They're gonna inscribe it on one of those gold records and like stick it to a space probe. <laughs> Like, oh. Put this in your ear holes, aliens. Like Carl Sagan and that if you have he them. was banging. Yep. Made yep. that space sky thing. You know, the one that we sent. Yep. Oh, man. The hipster aliens are listening to that so hard. Dead Mountain. Alien civilization just sounds so much better on vinyl. It's such a warmer sound. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I saw this thing on Twitter. Um... <clears throat> I, th- I think the quote quoted tweet was something like Weezer's Billboard charting song Africa being uh, put on vinyl uh, thanks to Urban Outfitters, yeah, and the that's... tweet the tweet said something Yikes. like um, this is a this is like whiteness Mad Libs or something, which is pretty funny and I, d- I did see that. I hadn't thought about Urban Outfitters in a while before that, but yeah. Urban I Outfitters. like a lot of stuff there. It's they have some really interesting expensive. stuff. It is expensive, yeah. I think, I remember one time I wanted to get a, uh, like a hooded sweater mm-hmm. there. They look cool, but it was like 75 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is not outrageous for like a good quality sweater, but it was just, it was, it was more than I was pre- prepared clearance. to pay yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we read this book, Dead Mountain. This was published in 2013, so relatively recent. Um, and if you don't know the basic facts of the story, I guess we could tell that. So in early 1959, there was a group of 10, almost all of them were students at this technical uh, college in... Um, what was the Soviet name of the city? Uh, uh, Ekaterinburg. Ekaterinburg. But there was a Soviet name. It was called something else. 
Doesn't matter. Remember, yeah. You have the book, so. Oh. Oh, uh, Sverdlovsk. 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 That's one of, one of my favorite side details of the uh, World Cup coverage is watching uh, soccer announcers try to pronounce uh, Russian place names. Oh, but it's so fun. Yeah. As we covered at length. I'm a big fan of it. Sverdlovsk. Um, yeah, so they were all really into hiking. You do. And they were really experienced hikers and outdoors persons. Um, and they were specifically going on this outing into the Ural Mountains in, like, fucking February because they had a school break and also because they were trying to achieve this Soviet rank. I think it was a Class 3 Master of Sport, which was, like, the highest ranking you could get. It was a pretty cool title. Yeah. I think... Um, I mean, so- I, I wouldn't do something like this to get it, but... No. I think Soviet visuals might have Master of Sport shirts. They have shirts for almost everything. I, I need to get, like, a lot of those. Yeah. I got myself one the other day. Um, uh, the one about industrial accidents where the dude's getting brained with a sledgehammer. <laughs> oh, my God, you guys. Soviet visuals. Follow that Instagram. There's so much good stuff. I, I would probably wear almost... There are a couple of the weird ones that are just, like, in-jokes or, like, place names or something that I right. don't or care about. Right, or if it's about, just, like, words in Russian that I don't, I don't really Yeah, with. but pretty much any of the, like, space logo ones are awesome. There's that entire series of just, like, Soviet cars mm-hmm. uh, that I think I'm probably going to end up getting one of just because I'm, I'm teaching that book in the fall, uh, that Red Plenty book, which is, like, mm-hmm. the best book ever. But there's an entire chapter that, like, chronicles Khrushchev's fall from grace in terms of the decreasing quality of the cars that he gets to be driven around in. Okay. Uh, and so I was going to get one of those car shirts to wear to class. You mean Steve Buscemi? Uh, yes, eventually. but Because he, he played Khrushchev in them. Death of Stalin. Death of Stalin, which is a great movie. But also, like, a, a very dark comedy. And there's a lot of things that are really not funny about... Yeah, I, I, I thought, uh, you know, Four Lines was maybe one of the darkest comedies I've seen. I think Death of Stalin, Death Stalin might be darker. darker. Yeah, darker. But, so that's that's a, you know, high recommendation, I think. <laughs> anyway, Master of Sport. Yeah, so they're uh, trying to become Masters of Sport. And the kid, so they're all mostly in their early 20s. There was just like one dude in his 30s that was with them, right, who sort of like subbed in. Yeah, he was going to go with another group, and then their trip didn't work for him or something, so he ended up kind of tagging along. He was like a friend of a friend, which they don't talk about in this book, but has been a source of, like, conspiracy theories that, like, who's this older dude Outsider who infiltrated dude. the group? And yeah. Did he do something? Was he military? Whatever. But, Obviously. Um, so they go into the Urals, and they take this long trip to get there, and then they're out hiking in the snow and skiing, really, and um, uh, one dude has to turn back because he... Um, oh, my rheumatism. Is, yeah, he is in too much pain. He can't make the hike. and So they're going to go up to this peak of this mountain, so they leave a bunch of their supplies down in a little shelter, 
and they're gonna do like a two-day jaunt up to the peak and back and it's that night that something happens and for a while nobody quite notices that they don't come back um, but then the families are like hey they should be back from this hike by now and they end up um, finding all of them dead in the snow and they Pr pretty much everyone is underdressed a bunch of them none of them have shoes on do they I think there's like one person who might have had shoes maybe on. one person has shoes on a lot of their clothing is torn some of it's burned some of the people have like crush or like head injuries yes and they're there's, in like two or three different groups sort of spread yeah, out spread in the general out. area there's no and there's cut marks in the like slices um, in the wall of the tent, but they figure out that they're from the inside. So someone was trying to get out of the tent and the tent inside is undisturbed. So it doesn't look like there's no f evidence from footprints that there was anyone else there that they can or tell. Or like an avalanche because the tent would be jacked up. Yeah. Um, and it looks like, uh, with the exception of the people who took a fall into a ravine and were seriously injured, everybody basically died of exposure to the elements to hypothermia which is like negative 20 or 30 there yeah. right in the evening at least and these are experienced hikers who in their in under normal circumstances in their right minds would never go out in that weather unprotected like that um without any supplies with them um, without their fucking shoes on without a coat any of that and there's never really been a satisfactory explanation they can't say why they all died. What's what's the wording in this sort of like semi-official report? Like a compelling force? A compelling something force. Drove them out of the tent. Yeah. But they never, I mean, they made no sort of official determination of what that was. And so there were rumors about what, like a Yeti attack that some... Unknown compelling force. Unknown compelling force. So that some people came in and tried to attack them. That someone in the group freaked out. That there was some sort of like military test. Um, yeah, there's some there's sort like of like UFO, UFO or alien stuff, kind yeah. of activity. Um, possible like military involvement, like there were armed dudes. Uh, uh, some people thought there might have been a, an attack by the the Man Mansi. I think. Mansi, yeah. The local indigenous. Bl blame people. the indigenous. Um, and to add to the mystery it, I mean besides the fact that they can't fucking figure out why the fuck they would have all left their tents in the middle of the night in these high winds and this cold cold weather um, especially people who knew better um, there's the element of you're dealing with the Soviet government which is notoriously secretive um, and kind of even at the time wanted to kind of like keep the funerals low-key and not draw too much attention and so of course there's lots of conspiracy theories about what does the government know were they involved or are they what are they covering up um well i think it's interesting too and the book talks about this a little bit um the kind of timing of it so this is you know 59 khrushchev has been <clears throat> in power for a little while theoretically there's you know sort of a post stalin kind of thaw and the first kind of um acknowledgement of errors although not publicly because there's Khrushchev's sort of like secret speech 
to the party congress about Stalin's crimes and basically confirm stuff that people knew. Um, but they talk about the other, the uh, the Novosherkask massacre, uh, where they shot a bunch of striking workers. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That is never talked about, uh, which is also in that Red Plenty book, so another reason that it's amazing. But... Um, <laughs> So yeah, it's it's this moment where stuff could be talked about more, so it's better, but it's still this is nothing they're gonna yeah. identify or deal with or tamp down any potential controversy or any sort of. Well, yeah, I mean, you talked about with the funeral stuff. We can probably talk about it more with how they very specifically kind of manage that mm-hmm. to avoid any bigger controversy or attention to it. Well, and basically, after a certain amount of time, the, like, lead investigator dude that they actually brought in, because he was, like, higher ranking or whatever, uh, Ivanov, maybe, was that his name? Yeah, Ivanov is the the guy, eventually. He, you know, he was maybe going to order some other tests and stuff, but basically kind of, like, he got pressure, like, we should shut this thing down, this is going on too long, it's costing too much money, and who knows if any of those tests would have shown anything well yeah in like 1960 and in 1960 soviet union where the technology is even like a half step yeah less developed than in the u.s or elsewhere so yeah so um this book kind of it so it alternates chapters between basically retelling the story as we know what happened um, because they kept really accurate journals and took a lot of photos because they needed to document the trip to get this certification. Well, and, and a decent bit up to at least that sort of like point of no return moment comes from the 10th guy. Yeah. Him and other witnesses because so. they traveled. Well, yeah, when they stay in little towns or travel with people or whatever. They traveled on train for a long, for like a day <coughs> and then some other there was another hiking group that was going on a trip in a different direction but they traveled north um quite a ways like with them so they were also around and have said like and the 10th guy the guy who turned around Yuri Yudin he said like there was nothing weird going on there were no weird dynamics in the group everybody was having a good time they'd all hiked together before and um Igor Yatlov who they named that pass for was the leader of the group and he was really experienced and a really good leader and um, nobody who was around in the days come going up to the tragedy detected anything strange happening amongst the people because there's theories that like because there were two women or theories that maybe there were people had crushes on each other and there was a jealous fight but there's not really any evidence of that and, like, there's also kind of an argument in the book that, like, young people, like, romantic rivalries and stuff, like, weren't really expressed in Soviet culture a lot. Which is one of the things that's immensely... I feel like half of my notes are just, like, weird Soviet culture things yeah. that I find fascinating. But, yeah, that idea that, like, you couldn't show a preference for just, like, one girl. That yeah. That, that was just, like, not a Soviet way to do things. Yeah. 
I guess until maybe you're like ready to get married. I don't know. But. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think one, and, until it's like a serious relationship, maybe you, I don't know, keep it on the DL or something. And yeah. Then... But none of the, none of them had like declared the love for each other. None of them were dating. They were platonic friends. There's no reason to think there was anything sexual or romantic going on. And it just doesn't really make sense for what happened. Well, yeah. I mean, there wouldn't be reason to kill everyone. Yeah. Like, if you, I don't know, if you were fighting with one other dude over one of the women or something like that, like, it would still be a stretch, but it would be plausible that, like, one person would get killed, maybe. Right. Why would six other people die of hypothermia? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, in between the chapters of that kind of recount the timeline as we can reconstruct it, um, Donnie Icar, the author, talks about kind of his whole deal and how he kind of heard about it so he's like a documentary filmmaker by trade I, I believe and he kind of heard the story and got weirdly obsessed with it yeah and like, well I, th- I think that's another one of the things that's sort of interesting with that is the the slow trickle and then the sort of post fall of the Soviet Union gradual kind of opening of archives mm-hmm. that for a long time there wasn't much information available or students had like surreptitiously copied bits and pieces here and there but like for what he what he's doing is relatively unique or I guess kind of novel in that he's dealing with like almost the totality of the information and getting to interview Yudin and some of the mm-hmm. other people and so it's a more complete view than has existed previously Yes. But it's also interesting because, and people kept asking him this, he went to Russia like three different times, I think. Including the last time where he actually like got some folks to take him out to Dead Mountain. Um, which is called that because nothing grows on it. It's like that, that's the name in, that's a translation of the, the Mansi name, I think. But um, people ask him, like Russian people are like, why are you interested in this? Like people in Russia are interested in it and they have conspiracy theories and talk about it and stuff too. They're also intrigued by it, but they didn't get why this random American dude who doesn't speak Russian, has no particular Russian connection, is not really like, he's not a mountaineering person. Like they just couldn't really understand. He couldn't really, he can't really explain why either. I thought that was a cool moment um, towards the end when he's visiting with the kind of scientific expert when he's dealing with that kind of theory. Um, that dude's Russian colleagues are, like, all familiar with this. Mm-hmm. Like, they all just sort of know about it. Sure. Uh, and maybe don't have, like, a deep knowledge of it, but it's, like, something they've all heard of and they know kind of the basics of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, within within Soviet-slash-Russian culture, it's, like, a known incident. But an odd thing for some random, like, Californian documentarian to be into. But, again, the beauty of the internet, I suppose, that you can get into these weird wormholes like that. Well, I'd heard of it. I think I saw something on TV about it. Um, I don't know if it was, like, a a history thing. It must have been. Um, It also is kind of floats around paranormal circles, and so, like... I listened to some podcasts they are like, what's this weird mystery thing? One of which was Astonishing Legends, which is where I heard about this book. I think they have like a three-parter on Jotlov Pass. So I was relatively familiar with some of the 
more outlandish theories and stuff that Icar doesn't even really entertain necessarily. Mm-hmm. But it's also interesting just to hear about an American dude just going, just like fucking on a whim, basically going to Russia and like throwing himself on the mercy of these other people who are obsessed with this case to like help him investigate. But who are like all, at least by his reporting, really pretty accommodating, all things considered. Yeah. That's just this random dude showing up and they, you know, let him live with him for a while. Well, that I mean, that might be a Russian thing too. Well, yeah, no, I don't know to what degree that's sort of cultural, that that's how you treat guests, kind of. um, His one guy, who was kind of his main contact, that he, like, basically emailed and then ended up... Is it Kuntsevich? Yuri Kuntsevich, I think. Um, He goes... Yeah, he flies out there, and um, Kuntsevich and his wife host him in their apartment. Like, they're, like, one-bedroom apartment or whatever. Like, he probably stays on, like, a sofa bed or something. And yeah. He do- I think he stays there every trip. Um, and, like, you know, they become pretty good friends. Well, doesn't doesn't the wife call him, like, a member of the family mm-hmm. at one point? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and her... This is something her husband's been obsessed with for years. He basically... had They have that other apartment they own downstairs. It's, like, his war room that's full of evidence and shit. And through Kuntsevich, he meets more people, including... Finally, being able to track down and interview uh, Yuri Yudin, the only living member of the initial hiking group. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, his investigation, even going to the place of, is not like he just doesn't really get any definitive answers. I mean, I think by the end he has a pretty solid theory, but it's not. You know, I don't know that anyone will ever have a 100% kind of answer. But it seems, at least as he works through the other options, it seems the most plausible. Yeah. I think by the end. Yeah. Yeah, he does does have a a, a theory that I think is probably more likely than anything else I've heard. (laughs) Because it just, there's just not evidence of any other, of any forces. Like, you can't, yeah. Should we talk about what his theory is? No, if you want. Yeah, sure. I don't know why I was sort of holding off on it there. Like, oh no! Well, yeah, we kind of like we need some build if yeah. you're going through the the general background. So, so we've talked about a few of the things. He basically discards theories of know, some military armed guards. There's not really evidence. There wasn't evidence at the site. Yeah, there's no extra footprints. Extra beyond. footprint. Extra footprints. Unless they were like hover KGB. Yeah. In the area, there had been lights in the sky in the weeks afterwards um, because it, they knew that it was near a base where they tested rockets and stuff. But there's no evidence that that happened the night of. So if it's like a military or a UFO thing, like it just doesn't line up with the dates. There's no other witnesses. He doesn't entertain the Yeti idea in here, um, which is racist against Yetis. Obviously, yeah. Although... What's the Yeti trying to do if none of them are even eaten? Smalling them, man. Just chasing them away. But none of them have those kinds of injuries. Just angry. Yeah, the interpersonal stuff, it just doesn't really seem likely as far witnesses who knew the groups and how well, like, Jotlov himself, like, led the groups. It just, like, he chose people who got along and would, like, let him be in charge 
And in order to survive on a trip like that, you have to be super duper organized and like, yeah, it sounds like these people had done this together before and that's, it's just not really likely that it was an interpersonal thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's no evidence there was an avalanche and it didn't seem like, I think they said that like the, maybe the weather and the, the grade of the slope and stuff, it just wasn't really right for that. Well, yeah, that it would just be... It would be really unlikely for there to be an avalanche at all, and if there was, it wouldn't be one that would be forceful enough to do sort of what they saw. Mm-hmm. And and when they, uh, I think they took the tent to a woman who was, um, she's like a seamstress or some kind of textile expert, and told them basically like. This isn't just a slash mark in the tent. It's like sliced. Yeah. <laughs> like well, with yeah, it's a not, blade. It's not like a rip or a tear. It's a cut. Yeah, it's a cut with a blade. From the inside. From And it's from the inside. And they can tell that from the, like, yeah. Just the direction of the bend of the fibers yeah, and or she whatever. Like, there's like a diagram and stuff, too. Like a contemporary one. And, um... Like, why did they want to get out of that tent so badly? But inside the tent, there's nothing amiss. Yep. All their boots are lined up. The The stove wasn't put together, but, like, everything was laid out. Nothing's disturbed. Yeah. So it's a fucking mystery. Well, yeah, and so his theory and what I thought was pretty plausible was... And he... Uh, did someone tell him about this possibility or well i think that his main contact had sort of hinted at it but oh it, right it, in the translation it wasn't 100 percent clear of what he was talking about right the best part is is that he's emailing with these russian folks doing like google translate on their email so there's yeah. some of the nuances are missed and so i think he sort of <laughs> arrives at it on his own but maybe subconsciously with the the help of his contact mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with the idea of infrasound so that sound that is sort of below the range of human hearing but can have uh, sort of physical psychological effects on people so like nausea um, anxiety depression dizziness um, there's like an overwhelming urge to just get away from it because it's so physically uncomfortable and distressing. Yeah. And there can be varying levels and it can affect different people differently, but like it's a thing and there are documented sort of instances around the world of places that seem mm-hmm. to have it and um, the kind of negative effect that it has on people. And then he talks a little bit about um, and, and it being sort of researched for like weaponization. Yes. Yes. So and how that's being kind of used, created, but not really. But it's difficult to control or to send very far distances. So there's that, but then there's also the the sort of rarer, uh, the rarer kind of natural form. Yeah, like a naturally occurring infrasound. Yeah, so from like um, different sort of natural formations in the landscape with like wind or whatever sort of mm-hmm. passing over them can produce this. And so the theory is that the mountain that they were camped on based on the position they were sort of camped on it. Because uh, it's this, just the, like, it's like they were on the slope of this mountain that's like... <coughs> dead mountain there's no trees on top of it it's just just like a a dome around yeah like a round little dome and they know that it was quite windy yeah that night like the the weather reports 
And so it just creates like, I guess, audibly a sort of howling wind, but beneath that, um, the idea is that the wind is coming like right over the summit. And so it creates this, these two like sort of eddy tornado things on the side Mm -hmm. and between them is this sort of band of infrasound that would have been strong enough to explain what happened to them, that they would have uh, felt, you know, nauseous, disoriented, felt the need to just try to get out of there and so slash their way out of the tent right. or like, run out of the you tent wouldn't be and not your... stop to put your shoes on or your right. jacket or whatever. You wouldn't be whatever. in your right mind. Yeah. You would not be thinking, okay, I'm an, uh, an outdoors expert. I need to put on my boots and get my coat and whatever. Like, you just want to get away because it's it's driving you nuts. You feel awful physically and... Yeah, and your mind is not thinking straight. And so, yeah. And that also kind of speaks to a couple other things, one of which is they kind of just scatter. Like, they're into smaller groups. Mm -hmm. They basically all run downhill, but kind of in different directions. Some of them together, some of them. I don't know if there was anyone alone alone. No, I think there was, like, a group of two was as small as it yeah. got, that there was, like, a two and maybe, like, a three and a four or something yeah. like that. But another thing <clears throat> that seems clear is that at some point, they, at least some of them, were thinking clearly again. Because there's that group, I think about four of them were around that cedar tree that was maybe, like, a mile away from the tent well they're trying to cut down branches and build a fire and do something clearly someone had climbed up in the tree pulled down branches and they had a fire but couldn't keep it going well even with the people that fell into the ravine they were at least a couple of them or at least one of them was coherent enough to understand these guys are injured i need to do something Mm -hmm. for them so i don't know if they if the wind abated a little bit or if they just got far enough away from it that it didn't it wasn't as overwhelming anymore. Well, or... probably down in that, like... Yeah, once you get you to the woods, maybe it breaks up the, a little bit. like, sound... The vortex. <laughs> yeah. If you were I, out I forget the area. name for it that they said, but it sounded cool. But yeah, like, once it's no longer affecting you, suddenly you're like, oh, fucking fuck. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna die. No one's wearing a coat. And the other factor shoes. they mentioned was that it was, uh, it was a new moon, so they, were, they could, like, probably could not find their way right. back to the tent if they wanted to. They found one flashlight that someone had dropped. But like, yeah, no, they didn't think to bring lights like uphill in the snow in the middle of the night into the wind, underdressed. Like they wouldn't have been able to find the tent. And so they I think they were just trying to survive the night. Yeah. A couple of folks I think they found kind of huddled together and then there were the folks by the um yeah, the burnt cedar tree. Well, and a couple of those, they said, even kind of, like, fell into the fire. Yeah, they might have just passed out. Why their clothes were kind of tattered, because they were burned, because they got too close, or they leaned in. and Right. Uh, and then the two, I think the two of the guys in the ravine were sort of, like, huddled up together, just basically yeah. to try to conserve heat, because they couldn't get anywhere else. I think they think that... A couple of them, their injuries were bad enough that it might have killed them instantly. Yeah, I think at least the person with the head injury, but the yeah. person who had this sort of like crush injuries to their torso, that probably yeah. would have been fatal, I think, too. There were like three people, and then one dude must have landed on top of somebody else because he... He survived. He survived the fall. Generally okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's... 
fucking scary. Like, if you think about it, like, it's one thing to be driven out of your tent by some sort of noiseless, odorless, uh, like, you don't see anything. Some Something is making everyone extremely scared. And even if you're not thinking straight, like, obviously they were all terrified and just had to get away from whatever was happening. Like, that would be awful. But I think that the worst, what would be worse is the moment you're, you stop being affected well and realize you're by fucked. that yeah and realize yeah it's <laughs> below freezing well below freezing you're not dressed appropriately there's no way you can get back to the tent like and then you just die yep i mean at least with it being that cold i guess it wouldn't take that long but yeah i know it would be pretty quick but it's probably not you know the most pleasant of deaths i would imagine Right. Um, yeah, so the infrasound theory, I think, is intriguing. And I think it's probably the best theory I've heard. Because there's no evidence of any other... Well, there's an unknown compelling force. We just can't know. Because there's no evidence that anyone or anything else was there besides these people and why would they want to escape their tent so badly they sliced holes in it and ran out without even stopping to put their boots on capitalist yeti capitalist yeti was like hey you guys like coca-cola <laughs> exactly you they're want like some, you want, no you want some blue jeans <laughs> he's trying to uh give him some of those uh bootleg records or whatever yep there was some interesting stuff about how, like, with that cultural thaw in the late 50s. And these kids were just, you know, college kids like anybody else. So they were interested in stuff like maybe singing politically subversive songs. Well, I think that's that was one of the things I had sort of a note on is the uh, the Bard songs. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep referring to it just because it, it has a lot of stuff that's really relevant to this. But in that I'm gonna uh, make a new drink. In that Please red continue. in that red plenty book, there's a thing about that. There's a character because um, <clears throat> there are like a handful of recurring characters, and you get to see them at different moments throughout a couple decades. And um, one of the characters who's a songwriter, uh, and he's always he's pretty good at kind of walking the line between like writing stuff that's gonna be popular. That has a little bit of a kind of critical element to it, but not so much as to you know get the attention of the censors. And um, it suggests that he's able to sort of do that during the Stalin era and then sort of during the Khrushchev era as well. But like later on in the book, he writes some stuff like that, which are these like bard songs that are pretty staunchly anti-government. Mm-hmm. But like you don't officially record them; they're just sort of like folk songs that people pick up and sing amongst themselves. Right, because the one dude had a mandolin. Yeah. That he brought along, and they liked singing. Playing some Smash Mouth, that thing. They didn't have, like, music on the radio that was fun to sing to. Yeah, yeah, no, just doing doing it that way. But, yeah, but then the the sort of efforts of the government to control that to a certain degree, and so there's, like, official culture, which you can get, and then... um, they talk about the I don't know how you say it I always say some is dot in my head but like the sort of like bootleg stuff that you can get so there are like 
versions of novels and things like that that you can't get a hold of. So like uh, the Souls and Needs and stuff, and there are other things. Uh, I think Darkness at Noon is one of the ones that sort of circulates in that form where it's unofficial, but you can get copies of it. Uh, but the government tries to counteract it specifically with music, uh, and they have those amazing... Yeah, so what were the, yeah, the records? The, well, so they have the sort of improvised records that people are making where they take, like, old X-ray film mm-hmm. and get them sort of etched with recordings on it because it's, like, cheap and it will hold a groove like that, and so they can use that. But then they also talk about the government planting, like, records in record stores that either don't work so they don't play and or they fuck up your record player Mm -hmm. or they play but then in the middle of the record it'll just shout out this message like hey you like rock and roll and then just like (laughs) threaten them with it which is kind of awesome it is to do that like i really like that but the yeah the sort of like try trying the the thaw but not too thawed kind of thing sure (laughs) <laughs> well, and what is interesting is <clears throat> when um, Iker ends up finally being able, and I think this is this is on the his third and final trip to Russia, the one where he ends up going on the hike, is uh, uh, Kuncevich is able to use his contacts to get a hold of Yudin, and he comes and, like, stays in the, like... Yatlov passed like war room basically and they and he interviews him um and he talks to him and and Yudin has these kind of like and he's an old man by this point in his 70s talks about how um like awesome Stalin was yeah and there's this young woman they got to be a translator for some of this stuff who like was clearly like pissed off about what he was saying and disagreed with him. Yeah. Um, but that's really interesting that someone who and maybe part of it is that he would have been very young when Stalin was still around, I guess. I'm sure that's part of it, but like I've I've read stuff and well that this um uh Svet- Svetlana Alexeyevich book I'm teaching part of in class. Um, is sort of about the kind of like post-Soviet nostalgia kind of thing, and I think I read it a couple of years ago and reread some stuff here in a minute. But it's I think in part it's about like this is a time we had a strong leader and were a power to be reckoned with. Sure. And I think the feeling is even sort of you know Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Gorbachev, you know sort of later Soviet era, and then. I guess I would say sort of pre-Putin because I feel like Putin at least sort of more contemporarily is someone people see as being kind of a stronger leader in that way. Obviously not like a Stalin, but like yeah, in the right direction kind of thing that like the Soviet Union was kind of run into the ground and then it became this like capitalist puppet state. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, people aren't cool with that. And so this is, you know, flashing back to a time when, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was a big deal and, you know, sort of like 1B, I guess, to the U.S. for a while, even if it was only sort of on paper or hypothetically. I mean, their population was so huge that they could use lose tens of millions in World War II, and that's not even all their people. 
And then they could send a bunch of more millions to uh, fucking gulags. Exactly. Gulags. I do like that he mentions one of my favorite trivia facts, uh, which is that gulag is a Russian acronym. I can't tell you the, what the Russian words are. But yeah, I've read it before, but I don't remember exactly what it is. And I've, I've used it as a trivia question a couple times in different places. Well, and even they talk about that when it was, I think it was one of the last sort of like civilization points before they kind of went out into the Urals on the actual sort of trip was this little kind of village, but it was like close to a few labor camps. Oh, like were, Bougie or whatever? Yeah, people were, you know, felling trees and uh, doing, you know, that kind of stuff out there. And so it's, you know, not implausible that they would have had contact with at least some of the like post-interned people who kind of live there, if not the actual kind of laborers. Well, they got like a a kind of a wagon ride from this kind of, like, they I think they stayed overnight in this kind of logging camp. They got like a wagon ride out to kind of like this staging area for their hike, I think. Um, from this old man... They called him something like, like, Uncle Vanya or something like that, like the locals did. But he had been, uh, like, a political prisoner for, like, 10 years, and now... I think he might have been Lithuanian, actually. Yep. But um, clearly they weren't afraid of the crimes he'd committed because he was, like, a local character that everybody loved and, like, would trust him to take up a bunch of like college kids somewhere in the middle of nowhere well and i think too i mean from sort of what i know of it i mean i think partly because it's sort of out in the middle of nowhere and there's a larger indigenous kind of population Mm -hmm. but i think too just in general it's sort of like not always the case but like the further you get from population centers slash moscow the less hardcore people are about stuff like that yeah so like they just don't care as much like well and there's not the reality of soviet power doesn't really extend to them that much right yeah it doesn't the and so they'd be more sympathetic for people who are in these camps rather the enforcement just isn't there because the the government that's putting them there yeah yeah uh and so it's not that big of a deal to have like former uh you know gulag internees there because i don't know that's closer to where these people are sort of mindset wise versus i don't know if you're in moscow you would be like afraid of someone like that or you'd be taught that you should be afraid of someone like that because they're an enemy of the state you wouldn't even necessarily be afraid as much as of them as much as you wouldn't want to associate with them because it could get you into trouble right 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 right. so yeah um which also makes the whole like is it a military or a kgb conspiracy like why the fuck would they mess with uh, a bunch of college kids in a tent in this extremely remote mountain? Singing those songs on the train, man. And, Steak. like, they had to uh, bring in, like, helicopters, and it would take days to get a helicopter in to, like, come pick up the bodies and stuff. Like, it was very remote. And they did the search. The search lasted a couple months before they kind of gave up and were like, well... They had found, like, half the bodies, and then they kind of had to wait till the thaw to come back and find the rest. Um, 
And then I think when they found like the last four bodies, maybe he talks. Igar talks about how the a local like Air Force pilot he must not realize that they were coming to pick up the bodies, and he like didn't want them in his in his helicopter because he thought they might be contaminated. He wanted them to be in these like zinc lined cases or some shit. Yeah. Or lead. Whatever. I think it's some zinc. kind of metal. Why didn't I, I feel like I told you about it before, but it's another Svetlana Alexeyevich book, the Zinky Boys book, that's about the Afghan war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they call them Zinky Boys because they ship them home in zinc coffins. Oh my god. Uh, after they get killed by, you know, Afghans, Afghan Arabs. Uh, so yeah, I think it's that same sort of thing. Is it because they're worried about contamination? I think like, that's just what the coffins were. Like radiation? Or? Yeah. Not that, I mean, there wasn't any radiation used there yeah. to, that I know of. Yeah, there's speculation about, like, radiation levels, but I think Iker pretty well dispels that when he talks to experts about, like, well, it seemed like there was heightened radiation on their clothing that they found... But with the with technology we have now, they're kind of like, mm, it was probably just naturally occurring, the levels. It's well, possible it, there could have been some dust in the air from, like, like nuclear testing in the larger region. Yeah. But for the most part, it's not, it wasn't, like, out of the ordinary. Yeah. But in, like, 1959, they thought that it would, it seemed... Or maybe their measurements were off or something. Well, and they make the reference in a couple of spots <clears throat> to the mm-hmm. um, their skin being sort of abnormally tan. Mm. Uh, yeah. And later sort of explain that away that, like, you know, they're out there in the elements, you know, they're out there in the sun reflecting off the snow, et cetera. So they right. probably they pick up a tan from that yeah. or, and or just exposure. Um, I think I told you about that thing in uh, that uh, Chernobyl book I was reading where... Um, of course, they didn't tell people right away sort of what was happening. Right. And so people that next day in uh, uh, Pripyat and I think Chernobyl, the actual city, uh, were just outside, um, you know, getting some sun because it was, you know, a sunny day, good day to, to do that. And noticed they were getting tan really quickly mm-hmm. uh, and didn't, you know, understand that like, hey, those are like radiation burns. That's mm-hmm. not just like you're getting a, a really good tan. And the people who were sort of closest to the reactor and who were involved in um, rescue operations and trying to sort of secure things, that was one of the things that they could tell right away that they had this kind of like atomic tan, they call it, because mm-hmm. they were just like really tan, yeah. like right away. And that's like a sign that you're fucked. Because if yeah. you're that tan, you're probably dead because you've yeah. already abdor- absorbed a, a massive dose. Or if you survive, it's going to suck for like six months until yeah. your body, you know, sort of decides it wants to to keep living kind of thing and then cancer's pretty high yeah yeah but yeah i mean that's what they sort of thought is like okay this this seems abnormal and obviously it's sort of pre-chernobyl but they know enough to know that like this is not a great their bodies were out in the sun for probably at least a couple weeks well yeah before they got buried by the snow yeah again are the ones who were buried yeah exposed to the sun like just because you're dead doesn't mean that it doesn't still react to the sunlight and uh, well, and they were. I think they said that eventually, the because of how cold and dry it was, eventually the bodies probably just would have been mummified um, if they hadn't found them eventually. 
I was just thumbing through and I remembered that uh, Iker went and he was able to interview one of uh, Igor Dyatlov's sisters and she thinks he wasn't killed by the snow. I don't know that she has a theory, but... Although I think a lot of times I mean, that, that, that seems to me to be like kind of a natural human tendency to want there to be something bigger to it. Yeah, she said because his skin was dark and his hair was white uh, but they could m m recognize him by the gap in their teeth but it's you know, she says they'll never really know and truth is we probably never will There's unless there's someone wrote something down a long time ago and eventually it's exposed, like, it's not really a way to really know for sure. Well, I think that's just the sort of standard conspiracy thinking, that you don't want it to just be some horrible accident of camping in the exact wrong spot mm -hmm. at, the, at the exact wrong time. You want right. it to be that's, something It's very bigger. rare. Yeah. Especially at the strength it would have to have been to cause that reaction among all of them. Well, and, like, nothing they would have known about or nothing that would have been understood as such at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, they couldn't really have prepared for it or you know, guarded against it, that it was just, like, shit luck that that's how things happened to work out. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just one of those randomness things that's more difficult to face that you want there to be something else. So whether it's, you know, capitalist Yeti or aliens or... <laughs> military or whatever yeah that gives you an explanation that has some like kind of heft to it versus just like random chance yeah well yeah and i think the infrasound theory is though he definitely Iker talks to a bunch of experts and they examine like topographical maps and weather info and and some people say i think this is what happened like it's I don't think it's that well known of a theory. Um, and especially if you are someone who grew up in the Soviet Union during that, like during the nuclear age and stuff, like, and the government's all shady about this and everything else, like, why would you not think that they were involved? Like, I think that's a pretty reasonable conclusion that there's more happening than they're saying yeah no i mean if you if you're you know in depending how old you are you know if you've got a 20 30 year timeline to play with you've lived through the height of you know stalin era purges and all that stuff and even you know the khrushchev era stuff is certainly not kind of above board so it's you would have any number of examples you could sort of think of of government doing sketchy shit or the full truth not being available. And so, yeah, I think it would make a lot of sense to default to that and just assume, like, if something doesn't make sense, it's because of this versus other explanations. Yeah. Although Iker does make the argument that, especially considering the time and the place, the records are actually, of the investigation, are actually pretty complete. That during the Soviet Union I think a lot of these like police investigations would they'd keep the records for maybe like 20 years and then toss them 
but all the ones or at least a significant amount of the police investigation records from the Diala Pass incident have been preserved and are available for people at now anyway available for people to look at well I like to think that was someone <clears throat> I don't know in the records room or whatever uh, whose you know job is to go through and purge these things and that person I don't know has their own sort of curiosity about it and they're just mm-hmm. like you know what I'm just gonna put this one off to the side mm-hmm. and they just keep it not out of any like specific agenda but just like this is kind of interesting I'll just hold on to this yeah uh, and the whole I mean like if you really just think about what happened obviously like whatever you believe it is that drove them out of their tent and then the fact that they just died slowly freezing to death it's fucking tragic and they're all so young and like you know vigorous trying to be masters of sport yeah and all they're all going to become like engineers and shit and then, like, there's this whole, like, these months-long search for the bodies in the area. And they're just, like, sticking probes in the snow all day for weeks trying to find anything. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah. It's really interesting. So, capitalist space yeti is the conclusion? Yeah, I assume. Okay. All right. Just making sure. Play by Ronald Reagan. In the film version. Right. <clears throat> I don't know. Were there any other... I don't know if you had any notes you wanted to point out? Any highlights or little... Um, I feel like we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I think one of the one of the things that made this especially compelling for me, too, was the just the amount of like photographic evidence. There's so many photos. So you get to see different parts of the process, and I feel like it, it doesn't necessarily... It's like half the group carried cameras. I mean, between the description and the photos... You don't get to know them, but it definitely humanizes them in a certain way where it feels like kind of a loss or it feels more significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, too, it sort of has that effect of, like, I don't know, seeing people right before a tragedy where you want to, like, be able to warn them kind of or something. Yeah. Because uh, you just see those pictures and it's like bad, bad shit's about to happen to you and you don't know. Uh, yeah. And... Yeah, I just I think it it definitely has more of an effect than it would if there weren't all the pictures there, um, and especially too like some of the ones sort of towards the end. It does a good job of um, giving you a sense of the conditions mm-hmm. that they're kind of out there in the middle of nowhere, and there's you know blowing snow everywhere, and they're just skiing. And it looks just kind of generally miserable. Yeah, uh, and that helps I think kind of set the scene a little bit. Too. Like these kids were hardcore. Yeah, to be college like kids they did out this, there. They're doing this for fun. Yeah. Like, you don't... <laughs> like, you're doing this because you love doing outdoor shit, and there's prestige, and I think maybe you can become, I don't know, like an instructor or something? I don't know what you can do with that master of sport, but it's not... Nobody's getting paid here. This is their school vacation, and this is what they're doing, and they love it, apparently. Well, and I think, too, there was that sort of idea that this is something that is... What they were doing is something that's sort of celebrated in Soviet culture. Uh, because there's that moment when they, I think, are staying over the overnight, or they stop over when they... I think they're stopping over when they're waiting for, like, a later train. And they're in that village, and they go and give the talk to the school kids who are all, like, 
enraptured by them and want to hear about their like Mm -hmm. hiking adventures Mm -hmm. and so it's this cool sort of like i don't know outdoorsy intrepid spirit sort of thing that they embody that people are kind of into yeah which is kind of cool uh one other thing which I completely forgot about and is I didn't even write down as a note, but I think I remember it being in there, is the guy, I think it's the older guy who sort of joins the group, has a tattoo of a beat. Oh, that sounds familiar. Which is kind of amazing. Yeah, because he was like a World War Two vet. As like a random thing that you'll have, just like a, I guess he likes beats, you know? It's, sure. It's cool. It's probably something you'll enjoy 20 years from now. You won't be mad that you got a beat <laughs> tattoo. So. Well, not that many people had tattoos back then. Well prison tattoos sure in in the gulag gulag tattoo yep tattoo of gulag maybe made in gulag it's, it's meta too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's a really um it's compelling and it's a it's a quick read there's a lot of pictures and it's just kind of like short chapters of like present day kind of and then interspersed with like a, re- a you know a recreation of the story of the story of the timeline of the actual hikers um and he's like he's a compelling writer so it's entertaining to read and obviously some of it is kind of extrapolated from their journals and stuff like that but um you know they're not people i probably would have hung out with i would have been like why would you want to do that yeah but they sounded like you know just like cool kids who fucking love the outdoors and like that's a Thing that you could do back then. Yeah, that's what I got. Hit all my hit all my high points. So okay, I would recommend. It's a good read. Yeah, definitely, definitely a good a good read. So for our next book, we're gonna read this amazing looking novel that Isaac kind of uh, insisted we buy at the grocery store. I, I don't recall you. I didn't resist. Or refusing. But you were yeah. just like, we should get this. Yeah. So it looks ridiculous. So it's a grocery store novel, you know, in that little book section they have. Um, it's called Without Mercy, uh, written by Colonel David Hunt and R.J. Uh, Pinheiro. Let me just give you a little sampling of yeah, the just back. Yeah, re- just read that back cover. The unthinkable has happened. ISIS, covertly assisted by Pakistan's intelligence services, has acquired nuclear weapons and the ability to deliver them anywhere in the world. Uh, a bunch of people die, riots, blah, blah, blah. U.S. President Laura Vaccaro creates a covert group composed of maverick FBI special agent Monica Cruz and Colonel Hunter Stark's violent special forces team to take the battle to the enemy. And then there's some other shit, but um, it sounds um, nuanced. I feel like it's going to be, it will be better than Patriot Games. Do you think it will be better than Patriot Games? I think it will be better than Patriot Games. Maybe. I mean, that's not a particularly high bar. It will definitely be less sexist than Patriot Games. Because it has active female characters, clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this seems like a thriller that will definitely not be um, anti-Islamic. This might be some uh, some vacay reading here. We'll yeah. see. Yeah. Yep. We're about to leave 
in a few days for vacation to the Pacific Northwest. I visit my fam, go to the maybe, beach, watch maybe, some soccer. Maybe run to a capitalist Sasquatch? Maybe. Anything's possible. All right, so without mercy for next time, it's going to be an atrocity in some way. No mercy on the enemy or the reader. Exactly. If you would like to get in talk, words are hard. <laughs> if you want to contact us, uh, couplesbookclubcast at gmail.com. We also have a website, uh, couplesbookclub.blog. We are also on Facebook. Um, and you can rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or any of your other places where you listen to this shit. Don't go into wilder- the wilderness. Stay, stay out of it. Bring bring earplugs, which may or may not work. I don't for think infrasound. earplugs would help because I think it yeah. affects your entire body. Yeah. Bring a body plug. Is that like a butt plug. Yeah, but for everything, <laughs> just plugs up all your stuff. Okay. Uh, be careful out there, friends. And uh, until next time, Dosvidaniya. <laughs>